Welcome to the Raised with Jesus podcast, 10 minutes every day with the life of Jesus meets yours. You've got your daily Bible reading, today looking at Micah, chapter 1 and 2. Before we get into the prophet Micah, we're going to begin with a brief introduction, this from the Concordia Self-Study Commentary by Martin Franzman. Micah of Morasheth, a small village to the southwest of Jerusalem, was contemporary of Isaiah, around 742 to 701 BC. He shares a number of passages and themes in common with Isaiah as well. But whereas Isaiah works and moves in the world of courts and kings, where the Lord speaks through him to the great political events and the crucial political decisions of the day, Micah's word in these seven chapters of his book concentrate more exclusively on the internal conditions of God's people and the judgment that Judah's social sins and religious corruption will bring down upon Judah and Jerusalem. Micah's denunciations are unsparing, his announcement of judgment uncompromising, and his call to repentance incisive and moving. In his vision of God's future for his people and for all mankind beyond the judgment at the end of time, Micah is again at one with Isaiah. Both prophets speak of the future reign of God and the coming of the Messiah from David's line, and they speak this way in high poetry and with the inspired exaltation that makes their words a marked and signal part of the Old Testament's promise toward the fulfillment found in the New Testament. As you can kind of tell from the phrasing, <laughs> there's a, comes from somebody who's a little bit more well-read and a, quite a bit better writer than I. So Micah chapter 1 is where we're going to be starting today. This is the word of the Lord that came to Micah from Morasheth in the days of Jotham, Ahaz, and Hezekiah, kings of Judah. Micah saw this vision concerning Samaria and Jerusalem. Listen, all you peoples. Pay close attention, earth and all of you who fill it. The Lord God will testify against you. The Lord will testify from his holy temple. The Lord's judgment is coming on Samaria and Jerusalem. Look, the Lord is coming out from his place. He will come down and trample the high places of the land. The mountains will melt beneath him, and the valleys will flow away like wax near a fire, like water spilling down a mountainside. All this will happen because of the rebellion of Jacob, because of the sins of the house of Israel. What is the rebellion of Jacob? Is it not Jerusalem? What is the high place of Judah? Is it not Jerusalem? That is why I have sentenced Samaria to become a heap of ruins in the open countryside, a place where someone might plant a vineyard. I have hurled down its stones into the valley. I will expose its foundation. All her carved idols will be crushed, and all her wages will be burned with fire. I will sentence all her useless images to destruction. Because she collected a prostitute's wages to obtain them, they will become a prostitute's wages again. Micah's Mourning Because of this, I must lament and grieve. I must walk barefoot and naked. I must howl like a jackal and make a mourning shriek like an ostrich. Because her plague is incurable. It has even spread to Judah. It has arrived at the gate of my people. It has come all the way up to Jerusalem. Do not announce it in Gath. Do not weep at all. In Beth Ophrah, roll around in the dust. Pass by, inhabitants of Shafir, naked and ashamed. The inhabitants of Za'anan must not go out. Beth Azel mourns. It takes away its support from you. The inhabitants of Maroth anxiously wait for good, because disaster has come down from the Lord to the gates of Jerusalem. Hitch fast horses to the chariots, you inhabitants of Lachish. You were the beginning of sin for the daughter of Zion, because the rebellious deeds of Israel were also found in you. 
Therefore, you will give farewell gifts to Morashath Gath. The houses of Aksib will be undependable to the kings of Israel. I will once again bring a conqueror to you, you inhabitants of Marashah. The glory of Israel will come to Adjalam. Shave your heads and cut off your hair to mourn for the children that delight you. Make yourself as bald as a buzzard, because your children will be taken away from you in exile. This is the word of our God. As with many of these Old Testament prophets with which we are perhaps less familiar, it might be helpful to follow along in a paper Bible or in a Bible app on your phone. We're going to begin by looking at verses 2 through 7, and this is a statement of God's coming judgment, and he, he calls about talks about his coming judgment on both the northern kingdom of Israel as well as the southern kingdom of Judah. And he calls out specifically, in talking about the northern kingdom, he calls out specifically the capital city of Samaria, and then talking about the southern kingdom of Judah, he talks about specifically the capital city of Jerusalem. And here, we really see that when he calls out the northern kingdom, he's calling them out for their sin of idolatry and for all the wealth that they have gained through their idolatry. And God says, you know what? You prostituted yourselves by committing spiritual adultery through your idolatry. And there's going to be some destruction coming that's going to make your land and lay it waste just so that it's no good for anything except maybe a prostitute's wages again, as God says in verses 6 and 7. That is why I have sentenced Samaria to become a heap of ruins in the open countryside, a place where someone might plant a vineyard. I have hurled down its stones into the valley. I will expose its foundation. All her carved idols will be crushed, and all her wages will be burned with fire." And here it is, I will sentence all her useless images, her idols, to destruction. Because she collected a prostitute's wages to obtain them, they will become a prostitute's wages again. And so God says, as he begins here (laughs) through the prophet Micah, he begins by talking specifically about the idolatry of the northern kingdom of Samaria. And um, Micah and Hosea overlap a little bit as well. We've talked about Hosea previously, where he was called by God, and God said to marry Gomer, and then um, the relationship that they had and the children they had was an example of the northern kingdom's unfaithfulness and their adultery against God in their idolatry. And Micah picks up on a lot of that same idea as well. But Micah's going to be moving further, that the destruction that is coming to the northern kingdom is, yes, going to spill over into the southern kingdom as well, because that southern kingdom kingdom of Judah has not been has not been totally devoted to the Lord either. And Micah says, I have to I have to call time out because the mountains are going to melt before the Lord and the valleys are going to flow away like water spilling down. Why? Verse five, because of the rebellion of Jacob and the sins of the house of Israel. And so the second half of the of the chapter, verses eight through sixteen, is Micah saying basically saying, Time out. This is what I have to tell these people, and it breaks my heart. This is what I have to say to them. And because of this, I must lament and grieve, walk barefoot and naked, howl like a jackal, make a shriek in mourning like an ostrich, because the plague is incurable. It has spread even to Judah, that the sin of idolatry has become epidemic in the northern kingdom without recourse, and it has spread and spilled over into the southern kingdom. And, and Micah says that this has arrived, this plague of idolatry has arrived at the gate of my people and come all the way up to Jerusalem and all the other inhabitants all around them 
are going to be are going to be astonished and astounded at the wrath of God that is poured out against idolatry. And he says, verse 10 and following, do not announce it in Gath, do not weep at all. And all of these cities and all of these actions recounted for us, especially in the second half of this chapter, verses 8 through 16, is basically a tour coming in from the southern part of Judah and talking about God's judgment and God's wrath as city and stronghold after city and stronghold fall to the approaching enemy. This is the the enemy that, yes, this prophecy was fulfilled when Sennacherib captured 46 walled cities of Jerusalem, and then he besieged Jerusalem in the year 701, roughly 20 years, 22 years after the northern kingdom fell. And not all these can be identified, and there's a whole lot of wordplay going around in the background that we can't, that we don't quite pick up on, such as verse 10, where we hear about Beth Ophrah, the name Beth Ophrah meaning house of dust, and God says, go roll around in the dust. And the general idea, the general approach, or the general understanding is pretty much the same. You get the impression that this is a storm of wrath that is coming, and nobody can stand up against it. And so, and so Micah says in verses 15 and 16, that God will once again bring a conqueror who will conquer these cities, and even the northern nobles from the land of Israel, perhaps, will come in flight and seeking refuge down here in the south, but they won't find it. And so Micah's closing comment, verse 16, shave your heads and cut off your hair to mourn for the children that delight you. Make yourself as bald as a buzzard, because your children will be taken away from you into exile. What could the people have done? that caused this intense reaction from our God, this intense outpouring of wrath. And it's not just not just a repetition, because yes, these minor prophets do get very repetitious, but God is also dealing with them, each of them individually and specifically, where God's people in every generation, yes, they have the choice. Do we want to commit ourselves to the Lord and take up the task before us? Or do we want to sit back and say, it's okay, there's nothing to worry about here. It's okay, I know my Bible. There's nothing to worry about, and there's no need for me to to take up my task in this generation. That we can be a little bit more relaxed, and we don't have to be as stingy and as as severe as the previous generation. That we can relax and have a kinder, gentler form of form of our faith. But the warning here from Micah is clear: that God sees, that God knows, and that God desires a pure heart that follows Him and trusts Him, a pure heart that listens to Him. And we get into that here in chapter two. Um, as we get into Micah chapter 2, Woe to those who plan wickedness, who make preparations for evil while lying on their beds. By the morning light they carry it out, because it is in the power of their hands to do so. They covet fields and seize them, they covet houses and take them away. They deprive a person of his house and a man of his inheritance. Therefore, this is what the Lord says, Look, I am making plans against this family of clans, plans for a disaster from which you cannot save your necks. You will not be able to hold your heads high, because it will be an evil time. On that day a saying will arise about you. People will moan this sad song. We have been completely devastated. My people's portion in the land is divided up. He takes it from me and assigns our fields to traitors. Because of this, there will be no one to measure off an allotted inheritance for you in the assembly of the Lord. Stop preaching, they preach. Do not preach about these things, but these charges will not be turned away. Should the house of Jacob say, 
Is the Spirit of the Lord impatient? Would he really do these things? Will my words fail to accomplish good things for people who walk uprightly? But lately my people have stood up like an enemy. You strip off the splendid robe from those who pass by as they return safely from battle. You drive the women among my people out of their comfortable houses. You take away my splendor from their children forever. Get up and leave, for this will not be a place to rest." because the impurity that destroys it will bring painful destruction. If a man full of bluster and lies comes and says, I'll preach for you about wine and beer, he'll be just the preacher for these people. A promise for the remnant. I will surely assemble all of you, Jacob. I will surely gather together the surviving remnant of Israel. I will establish them like a flock in its fold, like a herd in its pasture, like a happy crowd of noisy people. The one who breaks through the siege line will go up ahead of them. They too will break out and pass through the gate, and their king will cross over in front of them with the Lord as their head. And so chapter one, we really had this blistering rebuke where Micah comes out firing and he says, you know, listen, all you peoples, pay close attention. The Lord will testify against you from his holy temple. He's going to come and trample the high places of the land, Samaria, and the northern kingdom is going to be utterly destroyed. And the destruction is going to bleed over into the southern kingdom of Judah because they have been idolatrous as well. But then chapter two, he doesn't highlight their idolatry. He says, you know, verses one and two, he highlights what we would call, you know, um, loan sharking or punitive lending practices or predatory lending practices. Woe to those who plan wickedness, who make preparations for evil while lying on their beds. By the morning light, they carry it out because it is in the power of their hands to do so. They covet fields, they seize them. They covet houses and take them. They deprive a person of his house and a man of his inheritance. When God calls witnesses to account, on behalf of his case against the people when he's talking about the judgment that's coming and he's talking about the reasons why he doesn't have to really highlight all their all their spiritual problems he just points at their everyday practices what we would call yes social injustices and god is upset with that they plan wickedness and they carry it out and god says you know what i'm going to make plans for disaster from which you cannot save your necks And your song will be that we have been completely devastated. My people's portion is divided up. And you notice Micah gets right to the core, right to the heart of the matter, where he isn't addressing the spiritual concern head on, but he highlights the social wrongs and the wrongs that are visible to the people, the problems that they themselves can see and they don't want to admit that their coveting has led to theft and that their predatory lending practices have led to defrauding their fellow man of his inheritance. And the reaction, verse 6, stop preaching. Do not preach about these things. (laughs) We want to hear something else. This is making me uncomfortable, Micah. Talk about something else because this is hitting a little too close to home. You should talk more generally. Talk more generally about how I'm sinful and then talk, talk about how God is going to forgive me. Is it possible or even probable that we hear the echo of verse 6 in our own hearts or in our own minds or in our own homes or in our own congregations? Or putting it a different way, has a pastor ever preached a sermon that made you really uncomfortable and that made you think to yourself, oh no, not one of these again, and maybe trying to dismiss it out of hand, like, oh, this is what we always talk about this time of year. Um, sometimes that's a reaction for a stewardship Sunday or a, a sermon that talks about um, godly priorities and giving. 
Or maybe it's something a little bit more specific. I can think of um, Pastor John Hine when he talked at the multi-site conference, must have been back in, I don't know, November of 2018 or so. And when he talked about the the willingness of God's people to invest in the visible and tangible elements of the organization and the facility that they can see. And we could put together a fund drive. I mean, just think of this from your own experience in a congregation. We can put together a fund drive to to carry out some tangible, visible improvement. Maybe it's remodeling, maybe it's another location, maybe it's refurbishing, maybe it's tuck pointing, whatever the case may be. And, um, and maybe people, somebody left a bequest for that. Okay, cool, great. But where is that zeal? Where is that zeal when it comes to the lives of the people who live even outside the church door? Where is that zeal when it comes to knocking on doors and taking, you know, not writing a check for $100 or $1,000 or $100,000, but of taking an hour or two to walk around and hand out invitations. Here, come to, come to this barbecue, come to this picnic, come to Easter, because we want to talk about Jesus and we need you to know about Jesus. It reminds me of a book that I read, and um, I remember that I, I loaned it out to somebody, and I don't think I ever got it back. It was a book called Startling Beauty, and it was primarily um, about a church, a congregation in central Detroit that, for instance, would have all the people drive into downtown Detroit and drive past all the neighbors that they didn't want to didn't want to talk to or they wanted to be sure that their cars were locked up because they thought it was a bad neighborhood or a scary neighborhood or whatever the case may be. And they would be able to raise thousands of dollars to to send to a church or a mission in Africa, or even have volunteers to go over there and serve for a week or two weeks or a month at a time. But when it came down to actually connecting with their local community, when it came down to actually talking to the people who were just outside their front door, then that was not the case. And it is possible that if a pastor doesn't ever preach a sermon that um, that touches your conscience in such a way and leaves you unsettled and makes you even squirm a little bit, then is he really being a faithful pastor? Because there are times, much like a doctor, uh, where the pastor has to has to ask a question, and your conscience will be the one that makes you uncomfortable. Maybe it's the pastor that brings it up in the question. But it's the same way that a doctor, you go into the doctor with whatever symptoms, you're not feeling well, and the doctor starts palpitating and, you know, pushing around on your abdomen a little bit, and you just about hit the ceiling because it hurts so badly. Well, he says it's a gallbladder. But thanks be to God for that doctor who would be able to relieve you from that pain by diagnosing it correctly and by poking around a little bit in order to highlight the infection before it got worse. Spiritually speaking, that is a pastor's job as well. And that's why even back in chapter one, Micah, Micah says, I don't want to say this. I want to walk and mourn and lament. And, and it is really making me uncomfortable to have to say this. Pay close attention. He says back in chapter one, verse eight, because of this, I must lament and grieve. I must walk barefoot and naked. I must howl like a jackal. Why? Because yes, what God has to say sometimes makes us uncomfortable, and if it doesn't, then we have a problem. Stop preaching. They preach. Do not preach about these things, but these charges will not be turned away. Verse 6, verse 7. Should the house of Jacob say, is the spirit of the Lord impatient? Would he really do these things? Well, God's response. 
will my words fail to accomplish good things for people who walk uprightly? Verses six and seven, there's a sermon, there's a sermon in there for sure, that God has a good and divine purpose in diagnosing our distress, in diagnosing our illness and the infection of the sin that has set in, that he doesn't crush our spirits and show us our sin simply to elicit an emotional response or to help us walk through an idea. And he doesn't want he doesn't want his truth to be simply a set of beliefs that we just nod along with and it never hits home because it has to hit home. Because if it was something that just we nod along to, then what is the purpose? The purpose is that God's word is given for each of us to have it apply to us individually and personally. And it might not always apply in the same way. And circumstances are different and local context might determine a more specific application. And thanks be to God for the pastor who would have the, have the insight to make that application, as well as the fortitude to not back away when that application needs to be highlighted for his people, for the people that God has entrusted to him. Why? Because the, we see in the example of Micah and in the example of Old Testament Israel and Old Testament Judah that when it is left unchecked, bad things happen. But verse 7, God's words are given to accomplish good things for his people. And so what is the proper reaction? Not to wring our hands and, and say, well, I'm going to take my, <laughs> take my feet and my vote and my dollars elsewhere. The reaction is to say, Lord, have mercy on me, a sinner, for setting up idolatry, even in my own heart, for letting myself get distracted from your mission for your church. Lord, have mercy on me, a sinner, and restore to me the joy of your salvation. And that is the closing promise of verses 12 and 13. God says, you know, kind of laughingly in verse 11, um, that his people would love to hear about wine and beer and hear about sermons that talk about, uh, talk about carousing and entertainment and, and instead of sermons that really touch on what they need to hear. But God says for his people, his people, he has a good and divine purpose, which is to bring them to repentance and to restore them. And so God says, I will surely assemble you. I will gather together the surviving remnant. I will establish them like a flock in its fold, like a herd in its pasture, like a happy crowd of noisy people. And we are the noisy people of God. Let us be happy in serving him in recognizing where, yes, maybe our priorities haven't been as straight as they should have been. But thanks be to God that he has brought pastors and people who serve in the same prophetic office as Micah, that he has brought these people into our hearts and into our lives to help guide us on the path, the path of bringing glory to God as his joyful crowd of noisy people. So as you go about your day, take a moment to Thank God for the pastor that he has given to you, especially if that pastor um, speaks up on topics, even and especially when they are uncomfortable. And if it is a time or a circumstance when that pastor does address an uncomfortable question, or he lets the law sit on your conscience as well it should sometimes, then instead of getting upset or walking away or saying, I've got a dozen other options or saying even, you know what, that's not what I want to hear. 
then take a moment and thank God for that man. And maybe even thanking him as well for having the spiritual spine and the God-given ability to diagnose a need when it needs to be discussed and to redirect God's people so that we don't go the way of Israel and Jacob, of Israel and Judah, of Jerusalem and Samaria, but rather that we together, that we together may be established like a flock in its fold, like a herd in its pasture, like a happy crowd of noisy people giving glory to Christ. Lord, have mercy on me, a sinner. Create in me a new heart and restore to me the joy of your salvation. Thanks so much for joining us here at the Raised with Jesus podcast. Be sure to tune in tomorrow for our next reading from Micah chapter 3. God bless your day.